The art of war is of vital importance to the state. It's a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. Hence, it is a subject of inquiry which can on no account be neglected. Sun Tzu, 500 BC. And that was written in uh, the book, The Art of War, which to my understanding is one of the greatest militaristic treatises of all time, been used by many, many nations since he wrote that, coming out of uh, the Chinese military. Um, and so, though I don't personally give so much of my attention towards human-to-human, nation-to-nation combat, uh, recently I've recognized, maybe to a greater degree than I have in the past, that we are always in war in the spirit. And that if it's that important that we study and understand strategy and warfare in the flesh, then I think that it's important that we understand the battles that we're fighting all the time. And so whether you uh, feel it or not, whether you think that you're in the battle or not, whether you're experiencing it or not, you are. All the time, we all are. It's been going on for a long time. And so um, I'll be kicking off this new series. It's just three sermons, this little mini-series called The Art of War, because uh, we want to equip the church. We want to equip you to know who your enemy is, to know what it is that you need on the inside, and to be equipped with the weapons of warfare and how to fight this battle. And so to that end, um, I'm going to be launching this, this uh, series today, and we're going to take a look at who our enemies are. If you have a Bible, would you open to Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians? Last night, I preached this message quite differently than I planned to preach it today. Um, and so if possible, I would love for everybody to find a Bible somehow. I think most of you have a digital version of it in your pocket Um, because most of actually what I'm going to read is not going to be on the screen. I just felt impressed this morning that I should read more of the scripture than I had told them, and so they only have a few verses up there. And I would love for you all to have it in front of you, because I've sat in your seat before, and I know what it feels like to hear like a lot of scripture read, and it just sort of blurs together. But I think that it's, uh, it's, first of all, one of the most beautiful books Um, And secondly, everything that we're going to read is really, really important. And so I'd like to um, invite you all to really engage with that. But before we we dive into the scripture, I just want to pray and uh, invite the Holy Spirit to, to do really what we need him to do, what only he can do. So would you pray with me? Lord, we recognize you in this place. I'm humbled that you would allow me to speak on your behalf. Each of us are. Anytime we have the privilege, I just sometimes can't believe that you choose to use men and women as your mouthpiece, and yet you do. And so I ask and we ask now that you would fill me, that it wouldn't be my thoughts, my words, but it'd be your words that reach the hearts of these people. Lord, would you let your written word come alive through the power of your spoken word and your Holy Spirit? Would you teach us whatever it is that you want to say? Whatever it is that you want to do, we just want you to know that we're open to it. And so we invite you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So long ago, there was this farmer, and he had one son and one horse, and his horse ran away. And his neighbor came over and said, hey, the devil's really attacking you. That's spiritual warfare, taking your horse away. And the farmer said, "Uh, what do I know of these things? A couple days later, that horse went and found some buddies and came back with 20 other horses. So the neighbor came back over and said, it it wasn't the devil. It was God. He's blessing you. And the farmer said, what do I know of these things? A couple days later, his son was training the new horses, and the horse kicked him straight in the femur and shattered it. And the neighbor came back over and said, it wasn't God. It was the devil torturing your family. And he said, what do I know of these things? And a couple days after that, a mob came rolling through town, collecting all the able-bodied young men, and when they came upon that house with the son whose leg was shattered, they thought, well, leave him behind, and they went on their way. And the neighbor came back over and said, no, 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 it wasn't the devil, it was God. <laughs> and sometimes in life, we just don't quite know who to give the credit to, do we? <laughs> Who's really responsible We've got the Democrats blaming the Republicans, the Republicans blaming the Democrats. We've got everybody on social media blaming everybody else. We've got, we live in this society where we're, we're fighting all these battles all the time, and sometimes we don't know what's, what's right, what's, what's good, what's bad, who, who's really the one attacking us. And so with this first message, uh, we felt particularly drawn towards preaching about specifically knowing who our enemy is. Of course we want to understand God and know who he is and what he does and how he does it and what he can do, but I think for the most part we spend a lot of time preaching on those things, and I want to really highlight specifically what it is that the enemy can do, but let me just uh, begin this way. This is a cloud. It is a good cloud, because it's a God cloud, not like the clouds producing snow yesterday that were from the devil. I'll tell you that much right now. I'll tell you that much right now. Those are from the devil and you can't argue. You can't argue that. From the devil. Here you go. That's a God cloud though. It's a good one. It's a heavenly cloud. And here you are. Happy little tree. Just a happy little tree. Isn't Bob Ross awesome? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. That's you, okay? That's your life. Okay. We're gonna read in Ephesians chapter one. This is a letter written to the church in Ephesus by Paul, one of the apostles. And I specifically, I didn't read this last night. I just kind of quoted from it, but I just want you to see it. I want you to hear it straight from the word. And um, as I read these first about 14 verses, I just want you to take note of the things that God's already done. Okay, what you're gonna hear is not promises for the future. 
is not declarations of what God is going to do one day when he has a victory or what he's going to do for you one day when you pass from this life to the next and, and all of the good things that you will inherit in heaven uh, and whatever that is to look like. He's not talking about anything in the future. What he's talking about is all things that God has already done in the past tense. And so just look for those things as we, as we read this together and please don't let it just uh, zone over you, but would you engage with your heart and your mind in what God's word has to say? It's really the most important thing that I could say to you today. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse three. Just listen for all of the things that God has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have, we already have redemption through his blood. We already have forgiveness from our trespasses. Excuse me. According to the riches of his grace, which he already lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set, out, uh, set forth in Christ as a plan of the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've already obtained the inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his works, have been, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things for the good to those according to the counsel of his will." so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. So I just quickly, just want to draw your attention to the fact that he's already blessed us, he's already forgiven us, he's already redeemed us, he's already saved us, he's already revealed to us the mystery of his will, he's already, as it will say in the, a little bit later in Ephesians chapter two, he's already seated us with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. These are all things that he's already done for us, those who believe. Therefore, you are an oak of righteousness. You are a tree planted by living water. You are, you are now alive in him because of what he's already done for you. That's who you are if you put your faith in Jesus. You've received many, many things from him, things that are almost unimaginable, things that we can't even fully understand. He's given us more than we can ask or imagine. He's done so much more and beyond what we can even comprehend, and yet this is just a small list of some of the things that we can grasp. And yet we're gonna, what we're going to go on to read is that even though there's a declaration of these realities that Paul begins to describe to this church, and I would submit to us, a prayer that he has for them that, at, that he's asking God that they would really know and experience these realities that have already taken place. I'm going to pick up in verse 15. He says this, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this is his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. It's interesting that he's already described all of these things that God's already done and now it's a prayer that they would, they would grasp, that they would know, that they would have the spirit of wisdom to understand it. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you would 
know the hope to which he has called you, that you would really know it. He's already given you the hope, but it's a prayer that we would know the hope. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? We have been blessed, we have been saved, we have been redeemed, we have been raised up, and yet there's still a prayer, there's a fight, there's a battle that we're in. It starts in the mind, it's in the heart, it's in our spirit that we would know, truly know the hope and that we would know the power that we walk in. Now it's in light of that that I wanna read the first five verses of, of Ephesians chapter two, so tune in with me. This is what he says. You were dead. You were dead. Not just sick. Not just dabbling in some bad things. But you were dead. Every one of us, dead. In your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Now what we're gonna see in this passage is not one, but three enemies that you and I face. Enemies that at one time, while we were dead, owned us and controlled us. But for those that are saved, no longer own you, no longer have authority over you, but are all enemies that we still face in the battle that we fight today. So I want you to look for them. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, like all of us, but God. You were dead, but God. We were dead, but God. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He's already done more than we can imagine. Each of us, at one time, dead in our sins, our trespasses and our separation from God, but through faith in his son Jesus, we've come alive. This is already done for you. You need to know that if you are a son of God, a daughter of God, if you have Christ in you, when God looks at you, he sees you the same way that he sees his son. When he looks at you, right now, not just in the future when one day you're sanctified and holy, right now, when God looks at you, when he thinks about you, he is not thinking about the stain of your sin, your, your struggles, your past. You are not defined by your past. When he looks at you right now, he looks at you through the lens of the cross and he sees you with the perfection with which he sees his son, Jesus. That's how God sees you right now. And yet, right now, we all face, in this life, battles of different kinds. And so I don't know if you picked up on it, but there was three, not just one, but three 
enemies that we have. The first one is the world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the pattern of the world. The Greek word there is cosmos. We get cosmology, cosmos from that. Now, what it's really important to recognize about what he's talking about here, and this is one passage where all three of these things show up. It's called the triad of evil or the triad of temptation. Uh, All three of them show up in this passage, but all three of these enemies that we have are found all throughout the scriptures. And so it's important that you recognize that, that I'm not just proof texting from one particular passage, but you see this all throughout. This particular word, when it says things like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, it's talking about one aspect of the world, the fact that God created all this. This is his planet. This is his universe. You are his people. You're his creation. And God loves his creation. And God really, really loves his people. And so he sent his son to die for the world. But many, many other places all throughout the scripture, it talks about, Romans 12 says, do not live according to the pattern of the world. So when the scripture is talking about the world as something that is challenging us or facing us, Jesus himself even says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Noting that there is something to the essence of that word and the essence of that meaning that is an enemy that we face. Here are a few other definitions for it. The ways of culture, societal influences, temptations, ways of the world, materialism, secularism, naturalism, the general pursuit of unredeemed humanity, or the generalness of broken and sinful human nature. That's what this enemy is. So like the way that society would persuade you, the things that you see on TV, the things that you see all over your social media feeds, the things that that Hollywood promotes, the ways that society is generally moving, if it's any direction away from, from the ways and the will of God, that would be considered the enemy of the world. Does that make sense? This is an enemy that we face that is, that is in some degree or another, uh, an attack against us, albeit an impersonal attack. In the sense that the world or culture in this way is not a being with a will that's specifically thinking, I'm trying to get you, Stephen. It's just generally the way that broken humanity is going. Okay? The second enemy... is the devil. (laughs) Ugly little beast. (laughs) Says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air. That's just his title in this passage. Some other names for him would be the devil, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the tempter, the evil one, the father of lies, the ruler of this world, the god of this age, an angel of light, adversary, serpent, deceiver of this world, accuser, etc. He has many names and many definitions, 
yet he's just one of our enemies. Now, somebody once said that the best trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And I think that that's true. I actually think the fact that to draw a picture like this and for us to recognize the devil in that picture is a sign of part of his victory, part of his battle tactic. The fact that in about 30 days we're gonna dress some of our kids up in little devil outfits and think that it's cute on Halloween is, is insanity. Because really, one of his tactics is, is to convince the world that he's actually not there. It's just, just imagination. So we have art and pictures of him as if he's this, this guy with horns. And you know, Here's the thing that the scripture says, that he is a, an angel, he'll masquerade himself as an angel of light. And so if you actually saw the devil, that's not what you're going to see. You're probably not going to immediately recognize him for who he is. And so he has done a work trying to convince the world that he's not really there because then they won't fight the battle that they're actually fighting because they don't recognize that they have an enemy. But they do have an enemy. We do have an enemy. He is the great enemy of our soul. And so one of the best tricks that he has ever played is convincing the world that that he doesn't exist. But I got to thinking about it this week and... uh, Though there might be people on this side of this, this pendulum that think, oh no, he's not really there. There's, there is nobody that's the enemy of my soul. I think maybe the second best trick that the devil ever played was convincing the world that he has, or convincing the church that he has more power than he really does. I mean, we all know those people that it's almost like everything. Oh, the devil this, the devil that. The devil made me do it. The devil's attacking me. I mean, come on. And I'll just tell you right from the beginning, as I got to studying this, I started to feel really insecure because I, uh, I, I consider it a, a weighty privilege to preach God's word to people. And so anytime I stand up here, I never want to say anything that's incorrect because I take that very seriously, and I think that God takes teachers seriously as well. And so when I start studying something and I don't feel like I have a a real solid grasp on it, that really freaks me out. And so I was wrestling with God this week, and I just have to confess to you, I don't know everything about this. I don't know everything about how it all works and exactly how, in particular, the devil operates. I just, I don't. I'll confess that to you, but I felt my pastoral heart felt so persuaded I have to move forward with this message because what I do know, I think the church needs to know. And I was listening to this book and he said something that, when I heard it, I was like, I believe that and I think I've always believed that, but I've never really thought about it. Now this is what I know about God. If we're thinking about who God is and what power he has, Think about this, I think we all agree with this. God is omniscient, that means he knows everything. Okay, he has all knowledge, past, present, and future. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what's in your heart. That's the power that a supernatural God has. You don't have to speak it, you don't have to do it. He knows what's going on on the inside. But the devil is not omniscient. Have you ever thought about that? The devil is not omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at once. 
The devil himself is not omnipresent. He is one singular fallen angel in one place at one particular time at any given moment. He's only one place on this earth. So this idea that the devil is everywhere is incorrect. This idea that he knows, he, that he's inside your mind and knows what you're thinking, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's incorrect. I think that sometimes we give the devil, we speak more power to him than he actually has. He is an enemy. But he's not as strong as sometimes we think he is. And for some of us, he's a lot stronger than we think he is. What I'm asking us to do today is to consider with a sober mind, with the discernment of the Holy Spirit, what power these different enemies have and what they don't have. Sometimes I think we give extra credit to places that it doesn't belong. And so I think, maybe if we could boil it down, when people say things like, the devil's really attacking me, probably what most of us mean is the devil, his demons, his works, or effects. That's really what our enemy is. Because Satan himself is one particular being. Now, he does have power. I'm not trying to say that he doesn't. But the level of, the power, of power that he, he would have would presumably be on the same level that Michael or Gabriel, Gabriel would have. Right? He's an angel. He's not God. And he's a fallen angel. Jesus says, I saw him fall like lightning. But he does have an army with him. A third of the, the angels fell, and that is his, his... So this is his tactic. This is his battle against us. Primarily, I would say he lies to us. That's the way that he'll fight us. I actually don't think that the devil has a whole lot more power beyond that. He could take the truth of God and bend it and twist it and try and convince us or deceive us to believe something opposite of what God has said. And so no, I don't think that the devil knows every thought that's in your head. What he does know is the history of humanity, he knows your history, and he knows every word that's come out of your mouth, and he's studied you for a long time. And so he is skillful, and his, his army is skillful in their attack against you, but he does not live inside of your mind, and he does not control you. So to just say, the devil made me do it, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, is simply untrue. Now, one more caveat. I do recognize that there is something very real about demonic possession and oppression. But even in the scriptures, demonic possession is typically something that you can, you can see and discern based on outward signs, and the spirit-filled person will know it when they see it. And it is also something that can be cast out based on the name of Jesus. We have that authority and that power. And so I'm not saying that that also doesn't exist. I'm just saying that most of us are not possessed, hopefully, by Satan or any of his demons. And so for us to give that sort of voice, that sort of power to him as if, as if he is possessing us or our mind is simply untrue. Is that fair to say? All right. The last enemy that we have is you. The Greek word is sarks, and what it means is flesh. We were all dead in our transgressions and sins in which we once walked 
according to the passion of our flesh. Now, this enemy is not talking about your skin and bones. That's not what that word means. It has a much deeper meaning. What this word means, and, and in particular, Paul writes about it all throughout the book of Romans. You should really read it, especially Romans chapter 8. He's talking about the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the desires of the sinful nature that are at work within us. Now, if you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, then you are no longer a slave to either the world, Satan and his demons, or to the flesh. That's very, very clear. In fact, it's really important to note that the scripture teaches us that if you do not have Christ in you and you're not in Christ, you actually are incapable of, of denying the flesh and sin. You are bound to it in slavery. An unsaved person is bound to sin. But anybody that is saved is no longer bound, nor do we owe anything to flesh or to sinful nature or to the works of the devil or the world. We are no longer slaves to any of that. We are, we are only bound to the spirit, yet you and I both know we have the opportunity to choose it. This is a very important distinction. We are not slaves to it. It does not own us, nor have any external authority over us, yet we can choose it. And we all know that that's true. Just because you got saved doesn't mean that immediately you just never had the desire for sin. No, no, no. We still live in this tent, and we're still affected by the sinful nature. And so, in a sense, it is an enemy of us. And so I want to use this little analogy to just invite you to consider the, the challenges, the battles, the temptations that you face in your life uh, one of my primary goals of this message would simply be not to dissect or, or didactically teach you on everything that you're facing in your life because I couldn't possibly do that about your particular situations and, and either say, well, that's the devil or that's not the devil. I can't do that, and that's not my goal. My goal is to invite the people of God to begin to, to discern through the Holy Spirit when you face temptations and challenges, which enemy am I fighting so that you can win the battle that is at hand. I called uh, Dusty Hampton yesterday. There he is right there, my brother. This is a Vietnam vet right here, boots on the ground. Thank you, sir, for your service. I said, hey, hey Dusty, it's my understanding that the Viet Cong used guerrilla warfare. Is that true? He said, yes, that's true. I said, so isn't it, was it very difficult that as a soldier you didn't know if the person was just a townsperson or an enemy? And he said, oh, you have no idea. And this blew my mind. He said, in our, in our camp, in our space where we lived, we had Vietnamese people working right alongside us all the time, cooks, cleaners, whatever it might be. They were working in our camp. And he said, the same people that were working by your side in the daylight might then at night be the same people that are putting on black clothes and coming to kill you. I said, man, that must be really difficult not to ever know who the enemy was. And he said, absolutely. So he said, you always had to stand on your guard and discern if somebody was an enemy or a friend. And I think that we have to do that as well. Because when we get caught up giving extra credit, the wrong credit or blame to the wrong enemy, then we're gonna fight the wrong battle and we're gonna be susceptible to losing on the front that we're not facing. 
So let me illustrate it like this. Let's pretend that you have a, a friend or there's a person in your life and they're a bad person. Okay? And they come to you without your desire, without you ever asking for it, and they present to you some drugs. Okay? This is a person with a will. It's a being that's coming at you with some sort of desire with, with an agenda. Okay? In a sense, you could say they're attacking you. They're coming at you as a person with a will. And then they give you this, this thing that has no innate will, this, this drug or whatever it might be, has no, no desire, no, no personal force toward or against you. It's just a thing, albeit a, a, a wrong thing, a simple thing. But then let's say that you receive it from this person and then you give yourself over to it and then all of a sudden you develop this love for this thing. This desire, this longing, this addiction for this thing. Let's just make the example a little different just so people don't think, oh, it's just drugs. Okay. That right there is a pile of sugar. Okay? <laughs> Let's just pretend that some evil person sent from, from, from the devil came and gave your children sugar. You're thinking, Bad. I'm trying to keep my kids from loving sugar. Okay. I'm switching it up because the details are not important. I'm just trying to get you to see that there's a, there's a person in the equation, there's something that has no will of its own in the equation, and then your kids, like my kids, fall in love with sugar and they want it all the time. Okay? So then let's say that this evil person moves away or repents that it's no longer this person that's giving your child sugar. It's no longer this person that's the, the, that's the person that introduced pornography to you. It's no longer the person that introduced whatever. It's no longer that person with their will imposing upon you. They're gone. Now there's, now there's the ways of the world. Yeah, it's okay. Everybody just eat all the sugar you want. You know, look at the screen all you want. Do you whatever you want. That's what the culture is saying to us. And then it produces in us this third enemy, which is this, this fleshly addiction, this desire for something that's negative. And so if we were to, as the parent, go on uh, looking to the person that is no longer there, that has repented or moved away, looking to that person, blaming the person, oh, you're so bad, my kid's addicted to sugar or drugs or pornography or whatever else, and all you're doing is be getting mad at the person and forgetting about the fact that, that the, the culture that they're living in is, is all the time promoting these negative things in their life, yet you're never addressing what they're seeing on the screen or what, their friends, what the friend group is talking about, what the things that society is promoting in their life. And then you're never addressing the fact that there's something on the inside that's desiring it. You're never fighting against these two. All you're doing is fighting against the devil, blaming the devil, then we just might be missing the battle sometimes. My personal belief is that we don't always need the devil to sin. That when we think, oh, I'm just overcome with lust again, the devil made me look at that thing again or do that thing again, I just think sometimes, no, 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 you are just horny. <laughs> I'm sorry, can I say that in church? I was actually gonna ask in the meeting if I could say that word. I didn't say that word in any other service. You're welcome. 
know what? If you're uncomfortable with that, this is the world, guys. Oh, the devil, the devil put those thoughts of lust in my mind. No, no, he probably spoke a lie to you from the outside, but he may not have. There's, there's something inside of you that is gonna tempt you towards sin, and don't blame, it's just not always the devil. Maybe there's things in your cosmos that you need to remove from your sphere of influence. Maybe you need to take your cell phone and throw it against the wall. Who's stopping you from doing that? Maybe you need to get whatever it is out of your house. Maybe you need to know that something on the inside is going to try and battle against the holy, God-given desires that he's put in you, the spirit in you, and still try and lead you through your flesh to make unhealthy decisions. I'm sorry I said that word. (laughs) If there's any kids in the room. Just talking about animals. (laughs) How does one go on? Maybe you never blame the devil. Maybe you always blame the devil. Maybe you know that the world has influences. Maybe you don't. Maybe. I think it's a trick for us to think that any of the three of these things aren't after us. But it's also a trick for us to think that any of the three of these things are more powerful than the spirit living inside of us. Somebody said to me this week, no matter what source of temptation or attack comes your way, it's like, it's like birds, it's like you're a tree and birds are flying and there's always gonna be birds that land in your tree. Your job is not to stop the birds from landing in your tree. Your job is to stop the birds from building a nest in your tree. And so I get it. Battle, temptation, whatever it might be, are gonna come. They're gonna come to each of us. Our job is to recognize which one, two, or all three is the source, and sometimes it is all three. But to know that the battle that we're facing, number one, we've already won. Number two, we are not a slave to any of those things. Even though the devil and his demons might have power, they are actually not more powerful than you are because you have the Spirit of God living in you. And so really what I came today to tell you is that I want you to recognize as you face the challenges that you face in life that there are multiple enemies and that we need to know which one is attacking us so we can know how to fight them. But secondly, to remind you of your position and your power as somebody found in Christ. Now, I'm not today gonna give you the the weapons of warfare because I'd be stealing from two weeks from now, and there are some weapons that you need to know to be equipped with to fight this battle. Next week is gonna be what you need on the inside, and the third week is gonna be weapons of how we actually fight this battle. I would encourage you to come back, but today, I just wanna remind you that greater is he who is in you 
than he who is in the world. That you are not a slave to the world and it does not control you. You are not a slave to the devil and he does not control you. You are not a slave to your flesh and it does not control you. For you are more than a conqueror, for you are in Christ. That's who you are. We need to recognize that, we need to remember that, and we need to fight in the victory that God's already given us as we walk out this journey. Do not give extra or too much credit to the powers that be. You should recognize them for what they are. But then with the authority that lives inside of you, you should step over them and squash them under your feet. Amen.